0: Hey, I'm Jake Humphrey, and this is High Performance, our conversation for you every single week that reminds you that it's within. Your ambition, your purpose, your story, it's all there. We just help you unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, I allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to the greatest leaders on the planet so they can be your teacher and remember this podcast is not about high achievement or high success it's about high happiness high self-worth and taking you closer to a life of fulfillment empathy and understanding and before we start with today's episode, I have an announcement that I am so excited to share with you. We are putting on, we are putting on a very special live high performance event. It's happening on the 5th of February in my hometown of Norwich. And it's going to be a coming together of all the amazing things we've learned from high performance over the past three years. There's going to be live guests on stage. There's going to be conversations with myself and Professor Damien Hughes. We're going to be speaking to you, the audience. It is a show that we have worked long and hard on to make it as exciting as possible. It's it's not just a live podcast record it's a live show and i'd love you to be with us on the 5th of february and tickets are on sale right now all you need to do is go to the high and click on booking or go to norwich theatre.org i expect they'll sell fast so you probably need to move fast but i would love to see you on the 5th of february in norwich for a live high performance event i can't wait Anyway, back to today's episode of the High Performance Podcast. It's a fascinating one. Here's what's in store.
1: Everything I find relatively straightforward. Uh, I'm never going to say I'm complacent about it or take it for granted because that would be very disrespectful for the dangers that exist on that mountain. But we have a really good understanding of the mountain and how to approach it and what we need to do to get high on the mountain. But Summit Day is stress levels and anxiety levels certainly for myself as a professional mountain guide I'm leading somebody into the death zone I'm leading somebody into an environment where there is no rescue and I've been doing that for years and it was only two or three years ago I was doing as I mentioned doing a keynote and I realized the level of stress that I'm under in the build-up to that day and then during that day If the unthinkable happens, and for whatever reason we have an issue at 8,000 metres or higher, that team needs to be on point to extract us from that situation. I trust them and they trust me. And they feel comfortable that if they're uncomfortable about something, they can just put their hand up and say, you know what? I don't think we're doing the right thing. My confidence, I think, to a certain extent, comes from the knowledge that I can perform when it really matters. I'm devastated. And uh, he's been listening on the radio. Like, so so um, what do we do? Oh, oh dodgy man, yeah, know. Yeah, this isn't why we do these things. I'm really tired. Oh, quite. And he looks at me and just says, he's dead.
0: Oh, wow. This is some episode. I tell you, Um, as you heard there, it gets very emotional at times, but it's also incredibly inspiring and uplifting. So Kenton Cool is a record-breaking mountaineer. He has summited Everest 16 times. Not only that, he's led the expeditions of Serrano Fines to the summit in 2008 and 2009. But like so many guests that join us on High Performance, it hasn't been simple for him. Um, He will talk about tragedy on the mountainside. And as you heard there, it is incredibly emotional for him. He will also talk about a fall that he had where doctors were very doubtful that he would ever walk properly again. But he battled against all of those things. And that's what life's about, you know. There's a lovely quote from Seneca that I was reminded of when we spoke to Kenton Cole, And it's this, it's not because things are difficult that we do not dare it's because we do not dare that things are difficult. And the truth is that Kenton Cool has done things that are difficult all his life, but he's also dared. And that's what I want you to take away from this conversation. Seneca said, no man is more unhappy than he who never faces adversity, for he is never able to prove himself. And you must face adversity. You must do things that scare you. You must challenge yourself on a daily basis. And I know that this conversation with Kenton Cool will help to give you some of the tools to do that. Thank you so much for coming back to another episode of the High Performance Podcast. Let's get straight to it. The incredible life story of a record-breaking mountaineer, Kenton Cool.
1: i think high performance is quite an individual thing in its simplest terms i would say high performance is where an expected outcome is is exceeded and that could be in the individual it could be in the organization it could be within a team because by the very nature of high performance it's not a level that you can constantly attain because i think you end up with burnout whereas Every now and then you will find that, you know, you're operating at, you know, a certain level and high performance for me is where, is where all of a sudden you can peak. Now you've got to be careful with a peak because what happens after a peak, a crash. there's potentially a, a crash, but yeah, you, you're going to, you're going to attain something which is perhaps beyond expectation. Can we just delve into this a little bit then? Because, um people would look at you and think what a true high-performing individual
0: you must be constantly operating at a, at that top level all the time like how aware are you of when you're having a dip or like you can't go at 100 percent? we had joe wicks i remember on the
1: podcast remember he said you know, flower doesn't bloom all year. There is a period where uh, it shrink in. Yeah, I mean, he's absolutely right. I came across Joe Wicks only in lockdown. Uh, I remember doing all his workouts for the children. Yeah. Uh, it was fantastic, actually. I was a bit of bar humbug about him to start with. And in, in the end, i like, wow, he's doing some great stuff. Really good, yeah. You know, he's just totally in it. But I think he's right, though. And I think it's a great analogy. Uh, and it, it, Bradley Wiggins once said that you know, trying try to maintain like 70, 80% all the time because it's impossible to maintain 100%. You just can't do it. Yeah. You know, there's a reason why footballers have an off-season. There's a, there's a reason why uh, no rugby's the same, or, or whatever it is. So I think what what I try to do, I try to operate at a level, a constant level, whereby I know that I can peak when I need to. Yeah. You know, I live in the Cotswolds. I go running around the fields pretty much every day. And I, I try to maintain my fitness, whereby... I never lose fitness. I'm not starting from ground zero, but in the build-up to going to Pakistan or the build-up to to going to Everest, I know that I can crank it up when I need to, to be able to perform at a level which is going to be required in in that moment.
4: And what about mentally then, Kenton? So you described the physical, um, that resting state where you can raise the pace when you need to. How do you mentally switch off from the pressures of planning an expedition
1: for, for me switching off is, is is pretty easy in so much that i i invest myself in the family i've got two young children i've got a beautiful wife live out in the cotswolds uh, and it's only recently i was doing a, a keynote uh, to uh, for an organization and we were talking about summit day on everest and, and everest this is going to sound utterly ridiculous everest i find relatively straightforward Uh, I'm never going to say I'm complacent about it or take it for granted because that would be very disrespectful for the dangers that exist on that mountain. But we have a really good understanding of the mountain and how to approach it and what we need to do to get high on the mountain. But summit day is stress levels and anxiety levels. Certainly for myself as a professional mountain guide, I'm leading somebody into the death zone. I'm leading somebody into an environment where there is no rescue, and I've been doing that for years. And it was only two or three years ago. I was doing, as I mentioned, doing a keynote and I realised the level of stress that I'm under in the build-up to that day and then during that day is incredible. It's all-consuming. So when I find I come back from an expedition, A is a wave, a tsunami of relief that we're out of the death zone. I've, I've done my job. I've looked after this individual I've got him or her to the summit and back down again. Because let's face it, getting back down is the mandatory part of that expedition. Getting to the top is simply optional. And I and I get home, and certainly for the first couple of weeks, a it's a process of reintegration into Western capitalist society, which I struggle with. But b it's a it's almost like a stress detox because the stress levels have been so high in that particular period of time that I think I really struggle with it. So will you take us into that moment
4: then where that high stress that you describe is all consuming? Would you describe what that's like, but equally how you process it and deal with it?
1: It's over a prolonged period of time. And I, I don't know how unique that is. So I, I'm a bit of an aviation geek, uh, military aviation. I love it. and always have done. And I was reading a, a dialogue from a, a naval aviator top gun pilot or something like that and on approach to landing on a carrier they are working at maximum capacity and this particular individual said if you said if you asked me a question you know, what's your mother's name he said you, you wouldn't get a response predominantly because I've not even heard that question because I'm operating at maximum capacity to try to land that plane on that carrier and not go off the end or crash into it and it's not quite like that on Everest but instead of Operating in that environment for a matter of you know, five minutes or, or however long it takes to land a plane on a carrier. I'm operating like that for about a week. So the moment that we decide that we're going to leave base camp, so we're looking at weather forecasting, we're looking at uh, what the Sherpa fixing team is doing, putting the rope to the top. I'm looking at the mental and physical state of my clients. Uh, I'm looking at you know, what the Sherpa's team is doing, uh, looking at conditions on the mountain and all of a sudden we get a weather forecast in and, and, and y- y- you know, beforehand it's like, okay, this is good to go. We call it a, the lift. We're going to start the lift and we're going to move up the mountain to get in position to summit. As Soon as you make that decision subconsciously I, or even consciously, I, I can feel my stress levels beginning to, to build up and the anxiety, you can feel a tightness. And then as you move up the mountain, it begins to get more and more serious because the margin for error is very, very small, and unlike you know, maybe someone's got a high-pressure job in, you know, in London where we are today. And if you make a mistake in a in a corporate environment, there's maneuver room. In you know, worst case, maybe you're going to lose your job. You know, if if but you have got to do something pretty bad for that. I don't have to make a big mistake or bad decision. It, you know, it can be quite a minor mistake, and some of these potentially going to lose their life, be it maybe the client or one of the Sherpa team, or possibly even myself. So your decision-making has got to be absolutely on point, point. and then by the time you get to the south Pole of Everest, 8,000 metres above sea level, and this is where aeroplanes fly. You now, next time you get in a plane and you're going on holiday somewhere, and the captain says, you know, we're cruising altitude, take the sea, but have a quick look out the window. That's pretty much where we're climbing. There's no rescue. You can't get a helicopter there. You're not going to get a rescue team in to pick you up anytime soon. So everything is on the line. And you're in what's known as a death zone. Now, even with supplementary oxygen, the body is dying. And how long you got, you don't know. It's a ticking time bomb. But how long? Again, you don't know. It's an unknown. It's an uncontrollable so you're trying to deal with all these uncontrollables and deal with the controllables. And I employ something, I call it binary thinking. I cut everything else out. At 8,000 meters, you're, you're stressed. You've got anxiety running. You've got someone's life in your hands. You're the go, no-go man. You've got some of these ambitions and dreams. You've got a, you know, to use your term, a high-performing Sherpa team around you, looking at you, waiting for that decision. Are we going to go today? Are we going to go tomorrow? Are we going to wait at the cold? You know, what are the oxygen levels? And all the time, even with supplementary oxygen, your, your brain is being starved of the very thing it needs to operate with, which is O2. And, you know, you, you know what happened. You know, the first thing that gets eroded away when you are starving your brain of oxygen is your capacity for rational thought, your capacity to make decisions, Which is irony, really, because you're in the most dangerous environment, arguably, in the world. You've got somebody who's in your charge, and you've got to make rational decisions while starving your brain of oxygen. Are you kidding me? Of course I'm stressed. Now, there might be five or six Sherpas, paying clients, my own life. We're worried about crowds. We're worried about the weather. We're worried about oxygen levels. And then we've got to step out at night, and start moving in an upward direction when every single fibre in your body is saying, go back down. You shouldn't be here. Human beings don't exist at 8,000 metres above sea level. And then you've got to persuade your clients that this is the right thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm properly stressed. And what do you do with self-doubt when it creeps in? Because it sounds to me
0: like there's not an awful lot of room for that.
1: I think there's no room for self-doubt. And you know, a lot of the audience has probably seen Nims and his 14 Peaks, I think he's been on the show. You know, Nims is one of these characters that's got so much self-belief and so much confidence. I'm also a confident guy. My confidence, I think to a certain extent, comes from the knowledge that I can perform when it really matters. That I've spent, I've been working on ever since 2004, but I've been living and working in the mountains since I was 17, 18 there is a real depth of experience that I know I can pull on. David Goggins refers to the cookie jar and you deposit in that jar. And then when you need to, you can put your hand in the jar and there is an understanding or a knowledge base within that cookie jar that that you can withdraw from. And those deposits come from experience. When I'm performing at, at my very best, my confidence is high. And I think, certainly for 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 me when my confidence is high there is very little self-doubt the demons might be chipping away at you uh they might be trying to find a chink in your armor to to try to wheedle their way in and, and to manifest themselves in an ugly manner to to try to derail the mindset which is required for high performance for confidence you know, whatever you want to call it you know that bulletproof mindset that we that we all try to to achieve but the The negativity that we can generate within ourselves can be very destructive. And the way that I really focus is partly binary thinking, cut, cut away the fluff. I'm a firm believer that really critical decisions have to be based on logic and not emotion. At the same time, when I start to struggle with that philosophy, I then think of the children, which is emotional thinking. But... I use it in a positive way whereby I dispel the demons by, by t- telling myself that if I let emotions seep in, I'm potentially going to make a, a poor decision, not a decision based on lo- logic. And by doing so, it's going to sound quite dramatic, I might die. So I play out a scenario of what does that look like or what would that look like at home? And by doing so, it keeps me very focused and it allows me to dispel the demons or the um, you know, the negative mindsets that may be eroding. So what, you go through a, almost like a role play of your wife exactly and your children you
0: know, dealing with the news that you've died on the mountain.
1: Exactly. Right. It's generating a vision. Is using what would that look like? And it's obviously pretty ugly yeah. uh, scenario. But I use it in a positive way to enable me to dispel the emotion, to, to put down the, the demons and to keep my thinking explain logical. Explain how you do that. Because I,
0: like most people listening to this would be like, well, the one place you don't want to do is allow yourself to imagine your children being told your dad's died on the side of a mountain. So how does playing that out then allow you the clarity of thought,
1: the ability to make the right decision? Uh, very simply because it's a, it's a scenario that I would never want to play out for real. And by doing so, it fortifies me in a way whereby I am never going to let that happen. What do I need to do to inhibit that? Have you ever thought it will? There's been moments that I thought, oh, this is great. No, not not working on Everest, but on other mountains. I mean, before becoming a professional mountain guide, I was, you know, I climbed for fun. I was once hailed as one of the best high altitude climbers globally. You know, whether that's an accolade that was right or wrong. It's neither here nor there. But you know we were operating at quite a high level, and there were scenarios at times you think, "Ooh, we may have overstepped the mark here. This is actually going in the wrong direction." Or you know, you're you are ice climbing, or you're mixed climbing in Scotland, and the weather's horrendous and you know everything is reliant on a on a pick placement. The tiny weeny pick on your on your ice axe and is wobbling in a in a placement. You think, "My God, if that pops!" This is going to get really ugly, really quickly. So there've been scenarios that have been less than ideal, but you certainly don't start on a journey thinking not going to come back.
4: Now you described when you're on the mountain and your capacity to think rationally is being impaired by the environment, but you've got high performing Sherpas around you. So I'm interested of how do you get feedback from them? How do you create space that they could say to you, Kenton, we're going to, we, like we need to reconsider this or we are in a precarious position and you don't let ego or
1: your desire to get to the top interfere with that. I mean, it is a tricky one because the Sherpa, the, the Sherpa culture is definitely one of to deferment. Yeah. Uh, it's not very often you would get a Sherpa say, you know, actually, this is wrong. And it's and it's similar to the culture I think uh, with the Air career Korea or Korean Air. Yeah, there's lots of case studies on the culture in Korea. So, you know, Air career, you audience to probably know this, but they were experiencing a lot of crashes. Uh, I forget who the um, psychologist was that went in and worked out that nobody wanted to overrule the captain of of the plane, and it's a little bit like that in Sherpa culture, i.e., they they, they do defer to you know I don't mean in a drogatory way the the Western guide. yeah, uh, It's is changing a, a little bit with you know the likes of NIMS and uh, and LACPER from 8K and the you know, different um other, other different companies. But it's taking years to to get to this situation. What we try to generate within the Sherpa team uh, is that you know we are all equals. You know, and people listening to that will probably say, well, yeah, you know, but there's always got to be a leader. There's got to be and, and to a certain extent, Yes, but at the same time, by generating a uh, a team that is all on an equal basis, and some of my sherpas have summited more times than me. Dorji, my number one sherpa, Dorji Gelgen, he's ten years younger than me. He's got twenty summits to his name. Uh, he has a really good understanding about the small things that set sherpa teams apart. You know, because they, they're from a different religion, English isn't their first language, they, they, they're different culture. And he really understands the nuances. And we try to build this team whereby we are all on an equal standing. There is so no blame. So how did you do that then? I really invested myself in what's important to to the, to the team. Now I spent time in their houses. I've got to know their families. I've got to know the children. Now I've laughed with them. I've cried with them. We've had success together. We've had tragedy together. I've, I've earned their respect over. Many, many years. I used to carry big loads, you know, akin to the Sherpa loads because the Sherpas carry way more than the average client, like way more, you know, 10 times the amount. And by investing yourself with the team, living with them, breathing with them, you know, you do sort of earn their respect. And it's trust. I trust them and they trust me. And they feel comfortable that if they're uncomfortable about something, they can just put their hand up and say, you know what? I don't think we're doing the right thing or have we considered doing this? Or maybe we should wait a day or I don't think that where the window is quite what you think it is. Let's sit down and discuss this.
4: So will you give us an example then, Kenton, where you've been in that debt zone or, or maybe just before you make that decision to go in there where one of them have come to you and challenged a plan of action that you've had that you have then created
1: space to listen to and change your plans? So generally, I mean, it's normally it's normally dodgy. So he he, he becomes like the team spokesman, and for better or for worse, there's, there's normally a little bit of a disconnect between so where the sherpas would live and hang out and where say I would and the and the client and the, the sherpas would normally congregate in the this is at camp two. Uh, so we are halfway up the mountain, 6,400 metres. And the Sherpas would generally hang out in the, sort of the kitchen tent. They would eat and hang out and socialise in, in the kitchen tent, whereby uh, myself and the client, you know, we, we've got a mess tent. So there's there's this disconnect, which immediately creates a barrier yeah. that needs to be broken down. So I find myself spending quite a lot of time between these two venues. I spend a lot of time in the cook tent, just hanging there, listening to what they've, they're saying. I mean, a lot of it is in Nepalese. I don't speak Nepalese, but then... You know, there's 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 English conversations going on as well, and the the dialogue would normally occur in the cook tent where the Sherpas feel feeling really comfortable amongst their their colleagues and their friends and and the 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 cooks in there and the cook boys are in there and it, and it's it, it's a it's a comfortable environment and generally it'd be Dorji would simply side all up next to me. And we talked, we could be talking about anything. I think this is indicative about what an amazing man Dorji is. He would just then slowly slip into conversation that there is a general vibe that they're not comfortable about something. And it could be, you know, the loads which need to be carried up or perhaps their type because they, they work so hard and they are human beings like you and I. And if we try to emulate what they do on the mountain, you know, physically we'll be crushed, let alone where our mental state would be. Let me give you an example. We would climb from Camp 2 on Everest to the South Col, Camp 4, over two days. So if we all climbing Everest, we'd be using oxygen at maybe a three to four litre a minute flow rate. And uh, we will be carrying, you know, a, a relatively light load. And we'd take two days to get there. We stop halfway up at camp three and rest and recover, and the next day go again. And we would use maybe three, four bottles of oxygen to do that. A Sherpa would go from camp two to camp four, carrying four, five litres of oxygen. So that's like about four kilos, four and a half kilos per bottle. So they're carrying 15, 20 kilos on the back. They would do it without oxygen. They would leave early in the morning. When I say early, At like one o'clock in the morning, climb a good deal through the night, get to the South Pole, deposit their load, come back down again to Camp 2, no, all in one day, and they be back down by no, a late lunch. They would rest one day and then do it again. And they're doing it without oxygen. It's incredible. It's an unheralded feat of human endurance. I mean, these guys are simply incredible, and they are uncelebrated or under celebrated. Yeah, they're certainly yeah. under celebrated. We're beginning to see. I mean, Nims is is doing some 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 great work. Nims isn't a Sherpa. Yeah, people think he, is, but he's not. He's he's from the lowlands, which makes his achievements and his endurance achievements even more incredible. But he's doing some great work, celebrating the hard behind the scenes work that the Sherpas do. So so these guys are, are doing like big carries like that, and then they're. Is often an expectation that they are physically bulletproof and Sherpas don't get tired, but they do. But culturally, they don't want—they don't want to let anybody down. So generally, there's a—you know—they—they they, they will try to hide any physical like, tiredness that they might have, whereas we try to generate a, a culture of openness and. George, you saying this year, you know, Kenton, or Kenton die. So die is like a uh, colloquial word for you know, his brother. He's a term of redeeming. Kenton die, or Casey. I'm known as Casey die. Now, some, some of the shepherds are a bit tired. They're not a bit tired. They're exhausted. They're a bit tired. Maybe tomorrow we rest. And it, it's not... Now, he's asking the question you know he's, he's in many ways it's a rhetorical question he's actually telling me that tomorrow they are going to rest but he's doing it in a way whereby you know he's presenting it in a very grown-up way something that we would expect you know, a, a coach or and our relationship is deep enough that i understand that i, I know what he's trying to tell me it's not what he's telling me is what he's not telling me so you go, yeah, yeah, I, I think it's a good idea, Dorji. Yeah, I think maybe, maybe tomorrow they'll show up rest. You know, well, what do rest. And you look at Ming Dorji. Ming Dorji, what do you think tomorrow? you think, think we're going to rest tomorrow? He goes, yeah, I think rest is a good idea tomorrow. Go, oh, so, you know, so that, you know, tonight we drink Chang, you know, which is their, their local homebrew. Now, they don't have Chang on the mountain, but you know, ah, tonight we drink Chang. And they all start laughing and joking. Oh, yeah, we drink Chang tonight. But we don't have any Chang. It's allowing Dorji and, and the others, the, the space... In a very comfortable environment to have that dialogue knowing that you know if, if i do disagree not i'm i'm going to if we do disagree you know, no one's gonna be fired no one's gonna be sacked you know it, it's it's the openness that's required in a situation that actually is very very serious because the last thing i want is, is you know one of my top sherpas keeling over because they're overworked or overextended or they're exhausted i want that team out 100 percent when it really matters in case the unthinkable happens. If, if the unthinkable happens, and for whatever reason we have an issue at 8,000 metres or higher, that team needs to be on point to extract us from that situation. They can't be tired. I can't be tired. You know, we, we need the capacity, both mentally and physically, to deal with that situation. We have a lot of people, I think, still that feel
0: to be a leader, you have to make all the big decisions yourself. You can't possibly be vulnerable. You need to tell everyone the direction you're going, because otherwise it leads to doubt. And they're only dealing with, you know, a decision in the city or a decision in the staff room at school or in their business. Whereas, you know, you're, you are literally dealing with life and death and that story you've just told us. And what you just shared there is a reminder. I think the key thing, which is personal relationships is what gets you through in those moments, you know, possibly as much as even if not more than your skills and your knowledge and your ability. If you can't, connect with those people on the mountain, then then you die. You talked about the unthinkable. When you have been around the unthinkable happening, you know, thank goodness, not to you, but it has happened to other people. And there is a story of you performing CPR on someone for two hours on the mountain and still that person died. I'm I'm just interested um, what that horrendous experience would have done for you and whether after that there was any resistance from you
1: forever going back on the, on the mountain i don't think there was any resistance to going back so so the, the story was we came across i say we it was Dorji Dorgy and myself and we came across a stranded climber for want of a better word at camp four on Lhotse. so Lhotse is a neighboring peak fourth highest mountain in the world neighboring peak to everest and this was back in 2013 and essentially mr lee Uh, He's a Taiwanese climber. He climbed Lhotse, he's come down. And I don't quite know the ins and outs, but he was suffering from high altitude pulmonary and cerebral edema. So swelling on the brain, uh, fluid on the lungs. He's in a really bad state. And his team didn't have the infrastructure in place to look after him. And then they they hid the situation from the rest of base camp because they're trying to sort it out themselves. And anyway, he was essentially left. And we came across him at the high camp and the first thing I knew about it is one of the doctors at base camp, so there's something called the HRA, the Himalayan Rescue Association, it's a non-profit and they put doctors in at base camp to look after the clients and people like me but also the Sherpas and, and we get a call over the radio and uh, the doctor, Rachel I think her name was, was, can you just have a look in one of the tents, you know, we're getting reports that there's, there's a climber that needs some help and, so we're like, well, make sure there's no one else here. It's just Dorji and myself. She goes, just go and have a look in some of the tents. Because the tents were often left up. So we're like, oh, okay, well, we just climbed Everest, and we just climbed Noopsea uh, the day before. This is the year that I did the trilogy of climbing these three peaks. So, you know, I'm physically knackered. Dorji is tired. I don't think Dorji ever gets knackered, but he's tired. So we look in the tents, and there's no one there. And there's two tents about 50 yards beneath us. And I look at Georgie, and Georgie looks at me. I'm like, okay, scissors, paper, stone. Let's see what goes down there. I lose. I go down. Jesus. You know. So I go down there, open up one of the tents, and then, then there's this, this, this Taiwanese guy in there. I'm like, Jesus. You know, okay, Rachel, there's, there's somebody here. And,
4: and was he still coherent at this stage?
1: No, he was unconscious at this stage, but he's breathing. Uh, you know, he's alive. The tent's a, a disaster zone. And there's vomit in there. And it's like... Uh, his down suit's ripped open his down. And it's, it's just it's just a really ugly uh, situation so as we'll go in there get on the radio and Rachel was brilliant she was helping me through the whole thing and then uh, a couple of other climbers turned up both Australian and they were both climbing Lhotse without, without oxygen and one of them was I don't know if it was a doctor or a paramedic but he was able to assist me injecting uh, Mr. Lee with uh, dexmethorphan, which is a steroid-based drug, uh, and this had quite a profound effect on him. He regains consciousness. Uh, he, he's trying to talk to me. You know, he's you know he's, he's relatively coherent. He can squeeze my hand. He's responding to you know, various tests we're doing on him. But it, it's now night, and there's no way we can extract him at night time. And, and I, I stay up with him throughout the night I said to Dorji there's no need for you to be involved with this go back to our tent get a good night's sleep you know, we, we potentially going to need your strength tomorrow uh, so go back to the tent get a good night's sleep I, I'll deal with this for now and then at some stage I mean, I've climbed these two other mountains over like three or four days you know, I'm physically exhausted uh, I'm w- with Mr. Lee throughout the night I set, I'm set an alarm and I'm waking up every like, 20 minutes or so to ch- check on him uh, but at some stage I drift off during the night and I, and I wake up and um and he's not breathing so, christ you know, i've i've kind of you know, a certain, certain degree of um responsibility here uh, i've you know i've, I've let lay him down he's, he's he's not breathing uh and then try to call rachel on the radio but i forget what time it is it, it, it's it's three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, whatever. It was a long time ago. I can't, can't really remember. And I'm going to, into a certain extent, into panic mode a, a little bit. I'm trying to get Rachel on the radio, but not only have I fallen asleep, but I've left the radio out and the batteries have got cold. Uh, so I can't get Rachel. She's probably in bed anyway, but the HRA, are, there's always somebody on, on the end of the radio, but I kind of know what I need to do. What, what What's Rachel going to tell me? Like, you know, sticking with more decks. Well, there's only so much decks a body can take. And I revert back to being a boy scout aged 12, 13, on a first aid course. And if somebody's not breathing and you can't detect a heart heartbeat, well, you do CPR. Now, admittedly, I don't know how long he's been not breathing for, but I feel the compulsion to to try something. And I revert back, I'm 12 and you know was it Rissusiani or something that they were called and those rubber doll things I've never done it for real and you know it's a horrible situation it's pitch black it's bloody freezing and I'm like okay let's just do CPR so I start doing CPR and I don't know if you've ever done it it's quite exhausting it's much harder than you think it's going to be and I don't know how long I need to do it for because my first day training was you do CPR until somebody who's more qualified than you comes along and says you can stop or you continue, or whatever. But there is nobody coming along. We're 8,000 metres on Mount lotse or 7,800, or wherever we are. So I do it for as long as I can, and then I stop. And I think, Christ, he's dead. I think, no, he can't be dead. is you know, on my watch. I can't let him down. So you get back to it. And it was maybe I don't know, an hour and a half, a couple of hours, and every time I'd stop, i think, you can't stop. Because you stop, he's going to die. So you've got to try something. And then finally I get, a warm up the battery, so I actually put them down my underpants. And uh, I think, okay, well, how can <laughs> no, so, so I've got like four, Eight triple eight uh, double A batteries down my, or the battery pack, you know, in my down suit, not quite down my underpants, trying to warm it up. Batteries come to life. I get Rachel and it's like, okay, well, yeah, Rachel, what do I do? And she's like, okay, what's the situation? What are its stats? And so I explain all that and she's like, well, you got to call it. No, like, well, what do you mean i got to call it? He's like, well, and then so if you remember watching you know, ER and things like this, and then, you know, you got to, the, the guy is kind of dead. And I'm struggling with all of this. And I kind of just remember sitting back. And it's just about dawn now, perhaps a little bit later. And then there's a crunch, crunch, crunch out, outside. You can hear crampons in the snow. And I don't know if it's somebody coming up or coming down. And then the, the zipper zips open. And it's Dorji. Dorgy's head comes into this tent. And I, I'm devastated. And uh, he's been listening on the radio. So um what do we do? Oh dodgy man, you yeah. yeah, I this isn't why we do these things. I'm Really tired. Oh, quite. And he looks at me and just says, He's dead. There's nothing you can do. And I just look at this guy and he's this with his head, It's in my in my lap. Oh sorry about that. This is like ten years on I still struggle with this. And Dorsey just says, We gotta climb. I oh, you can't climb. Look there's this guy. I didn't even know his name at the time, and it's this guy literally in my lap. Oh, I can't climb. And he just looks at me and goes, I've always wanted to climb Lotsey. We should climb. And we're not climbing for him. We're climbing for me. And he knows me so well. I'm oh, really sorry about this. He knows me so well, and he knows exactly how to pull the right strings. And I think that's so um, telling of when you put together a team that really works, you know exactly what everybody needs on that team in a time of crisis whether they need to find that extra gear or whether in that scenario in that moment that individual I don't think it is but let's call it vulnerability what he or she needs to get over that and Dorji just hit all the right notes and I think that's it's partly indicative of what an amazing man he is, but also the culture that over years, all of us have put together in, in that situation. You know, and I, I was conflicted. You know, I put on my crampons and I left Mr. Lee in that tent and and we climbed. And it'd be very easy for you know somebody out there to say, well, you know, perhaps you should have done this or you should have done that. But for me in that moment, or for us in that moment, I mean, Mr. Lee was dead. There's nothing we could have done anymore to try to look after him, and, and we climbed. And they, you know, what was the what's the phrase? You, know, you fall off a horse, first thing you got to do is get back on it. And I, I think it was it was perfect. I remember coming back down. We climbed the Somebody at one o'clock in the afternoon. We get caught in a storm on the way down. You know, we climbed these three peaks, and you know, Harold is you know, quite quite a big thing in the climbing world at the time. And we come down in a storm. And I'm like a oh, Christ. You know what else can be thrown at us? And we get back down to the high camp, and Dorji's busy packing various things up and I just said to him, "I just need a few minutes yeah and went back into the tent with Mr. Lee and just sort of sat there and just tried to deal internally with what what had happened overnight and then you know a Sherpa team was coming up to try to initiate a rescue um I mean they're obviously too late by probably a couple of days. And I just remember zipping zipping Mr. Lee into a sleeping bag and you know, closing the tent door on him and and walking away. Uh, I I mean, his body his body was recovered two days later, I think, by by the Sherpa team and you know, his his family contacted me a little while afterwards and
0: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
4: I mean, it's incredible stories and thank you for sharing it. But it's also a reminder of a phrase that we've used in other interviews on this series around the memento mori, the reminder of our own mortality. And you've seen it in the most visceral, real sense of it. So I'm interested in how did you process Mr. Lee's death and justify continuing to scale Everest, continuing to put yourself into those death zones?
1: I don't think I have processed what happened. I'm still quite bitter with the logistical team that was looking after him. I've never spoken to them about it. I've got to know them relatively well since. i never spoken to them about it, which perhaps I should. Mm. Uh, I, I wonder think, yeah. why you haven't.
0: You strike me as the kind of person that would go straight in and go, listen, the next person in that position doesn't die and here's yeah, how and they, they don't and they, die. and they shouldn't yeah.
1: die. And, you know, hey, it's... You know, that particular logistical outfit, I mean, they've got a lot better now, but they they had an awful track record back then. And... Yeah, maybe maybe there was a duty that I should have done to try to put things in place, that, that sort of thing. Because it was avoidable. It was totally avoidable. But, yeah, you know, I don't think I have protest. I'm really bad at putting things like that into a closet and closing the door. And, you know, I, I've experienced, you know, a lot of friends of mine have died in the mountains or rock climbing or, you know, whatever it, it is that they're doing. And I've, I don't think I've ever fully processed things. And I think partly it's the generation that I'm from. I think it's partly, this is going to sound rubbish. I think it's partly because I'm a guy and there is this sort of stigma around that you know, we, you don't show weakness and, you know, you, you just deal with things. But, we, you know, we all know that that's wrong these days. And over the last few years, I have been investing time in myself, which I think is such an important thing to do. You now, if a friend comes up to you and says, "You know, hey, you know, I, I need help with something. I'm trying to process this, or you know, I'm going through a divorce, or you know, my dad's just died, or you know, I've done this, or whatever it is," you, you help that individual. You, know, you maybe sit down with them, you, you, you spend time with them, you try to get them through the trauma of whatever trauma it is that they're experiencing. Uh, and try to put them in a better place well why wouldn't we do that to ourselves now i know people are and a, the culture that we're in today is, is much better but we'd invest time in others why why don't we invest more time in ourselves uh and i'm, I'm beginning to do that and, and understand that these things do need closure and they do need to be a, an open dialogue with with people and uh and my wife's fantastic for for for, for doing this um
4: so would you have shared that story with your wife
1: oh god yeah
4: so then how does she react when you then say i'm now off again to everest
1: well i mean it's it's really interesting one isn't it because it's it's people that you leave behind and i don't know the stress and anxiety i mean i I was talking about the stress and anxiety of, of summit day on everest but what is the stress and anxiety of those that don't come that those that aren't there in the moment you know, going through the processes of the decision making and you know, Jazz doesn't know what the weather is, you know, she doesn't know what the uh, you know, how the clients are the auction levels and things like this. All she sees, for better or for worse, these days, you know, we have all got trackers and things like that, and you can track you up the mountain. And she knows what it's entailed. I mean, she's heard a story about Mr. Lee or the Sherpa that I pulled off the fixed lines who, you know, he got hit by a rock and you know, half his head fell off. And uh, and she knows the attrition rate with my friends. And, but I don't know what she goes through. I mean, we talk about it sometimes. And I mean, there's a couple of sort of anecdotal stories that perhaps shows you a little bit about what she goes through and, and what the children go through. The children are now 9 and 11. They have an understanding about what daddy does and they have an understanding about the dangers. I was on K2 last year in Pakistan, a much harder mountain to climb. And I'm there with a, with a client. And we were on summit day, and my tracker glitched, and instead of going up, all of a sudden it's moved significantly in a downhill direction. Oh! And Jazz is, oh Christ, he's fallen. He's fallen. What can I do? What happened? What happened? You know, luckily she's got the depth of experience and she's experienced many a sense of Everest and K2's new, but she checks one or two of the other trackers of the party and everybody else is moving in upward direction. So she's like, okay, let's not panic just yet. People are still moving up. But for that moment, she's like, Christ. And what's running through her mind?
4: There'll be people listening to this, can though, that think that what you're doing carries a degree of selfishness. When you hear those anecdotes about the stress that jazz goes through and receiving the calls, so how do you square that away with being a loving father and a husband and yet still having this need to go and scale the mountains?
1: So uh, you're 100% right. Climbing is one of the most arbitrary, selfish, ridiculous thing I think, in existence, because generally you're never going to get rich. You're never going to get famous. Uh, and in many ways it's almost a perfect sport because of that. So you do it, or I do it at least, for much more holistic, organic, meaningful ways, because it means something to me. Now, I could try to parry that by saying, it is my job, I pay the mortgage through climbing big mountains. But you know, I-, I could be a stockbroker or a lawyer or a you know, whatever, you know, I-, I could choose any uh, any sort of avenue. Does it need justification? Well, maybe to the outsider it does, but to us as a cohesive family unit, it doesn't. And the reason I think it doesn't is to be you know, the best husband or father that I I can be, I, there needs to be a level of contentment. And I find my contentment is aided by time spent in the mountains, whether that's for work, or whether that's for play, and it could be skiing, it could be walking, it could be rock climbing, or whatever it is. And if you remove that, I I definitely get jittery. Jazz can see it. And she a number of times she said to me, you know what, I think you need to book a flight, go and contact some of your friends out in the Alps, and just sod off and go (laughs) climbing. Come and see me in a week's time, because you're getting unpleasant, the children don't like you right now, and I think you're being really, really mean. So, so go on, went off, and come back in a week's time, and I will come back reset, uh, much more pleasant. And I mean, it was Alan a- wrote a book called Feeding the Rat, and it's about Mo Antoine. It was Mo Antoine's biography, a climber uh, who died uh, in the eighties, I think. And insiders, and it doesn't matter. It could be climbing, it could be sport, it could be, it could be anything. I mean, it could be work. It, it could be, and insiders, you know, we have a rat. And that rat needs sustenance, and if you starve the rat of whatever sustenance he he or she needs, they start gnawing away at your insides. And that rat, in, in my rat, needs time in the mountains, and when he's content, he will quite happily like curl up and do whatever rats do when when they're when are not gnawing away and and. It's so true. I think we all have a rat of some description. And we all need that selfish time, that self-investment that we were talking about earlier, that time to ourselves. And yeah, I want to spend time with the family. I want to spend, be playing French cricket or football in the garden with my son and my daughter or taking her up to the hockey pitch and hitting hockey balls around. Yet at the same time, I need that me time because I am a human being as well. And I'm developing and I'm growing and I'm learning all the time. And we, and we need to invest in the me sometimes as much as we invest in other people. Uh, and we forget that sometimes. Right at the beginning, um,
0: you spoke about coming back and almost having to decompress from mountain life and mm. having to re to the Western world. Before we move on to our quickfire questions at the end, I would love you to share with us any lessons or learnings or the biggest thing that we can take away from this conversation when it comes to the mistakes we're making in this Western world, because what we haven't oh my seen goodness. and all the people listening on their smartphones right now, whilst on the tube or on the bus to work, uh, totally immersed in this Western world. Many people listen to this because they want to be entrepreneurial and they want to make their mark and they want to get rich. And what is the biggest mistake? What's the biggest trap that we're all falling into that you've almost been shown the light when it comes to the other world that you've operated in?
1: I think I'm really lucky. I travel a lot and I travel to places in South America, Pakistan, India. I've seen a whole host of things. And whenever I come back to the UK or wherever it may be, I used to live in France, I come back to France, or I really worry about the society that we belong to, the capitalist society that we are indoctrinated to believe is so amazing and something that we should all be part of. And it's instilled from us from a really early age. I'm not in complete agreement that the capitalist society is the best society. Uh, Gordon Gecko, greed is good, really? Well, how, how much do we need? I mean, I, we're, 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 I'm looking out at London today, and we can see all the cranes up, and you know, I can see buildings as, as far as I see and people are going about their business. And you, know, you mentioned just a minute ago in the question, that you know, people are listening to this on their smartphones, or they've got earbuds in on the bus, or on the on the on the And what happens to connectedness? And when you go to places in the or of Pakistan and you're in these little villages or I'm working with my Sherpa crew, the times that we are disconnected from the grid, uh, we don't have our smartphones or devices, we become connected in other ways. And all of a sudden, there's a community. There's a collective. Because the capitalist society is all about the individual. And really, if you go back, not even that far, you know, the human species is tribal. You know, and a tribe is a collection of, of individuals that is much more powerful than the individual because a tribe needs everybody working together to, to exist. Is it the Kalahari, um, the, the tribe that's in the Kalahari Desert? They've worked out, they work 16 hours a week, I think it is. And if somebody's not pulling their 16 hours, they're, they're, they're kicked out of the tribe and they're not going to exist for very long because everybody's got to pull their weight. And that's for the collective good. And you see mm. that in some of these, you know, air quotes, developing cultures, developing nations. And, you know, we saw it a little bit in lockdown. You know, we saw the positiveness of communities coming together and pulling as one. We're all in it together. But we're, you know, we're, we're short sighted individuals. And we, you know, we're constantly thinking about, one-upmanship or getting one over your neighbour or whatever it is, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, the rat race that yeah. is The environment. society. example. We're putting everything in front of the environment. Oh and there my will goodness. be no mountains to climb for the next generation. Yeah, well, there's going to be no planet left yeah. if we continue. And, and that, that's a, such a good analogy. It's the biggest madness of all, isn't it? Uh, Literally, it's, it's, there will
0: be no planet, yet you still want to build and a you, And you've seen the powered. manifestos
1: of our governments going, yeah. oh yeah, we're going to address this. Yeah. And it's like such it's short-term... Madness. Yeah, it's a madness, yeah. Because there's going to be nothing left. And if there's anything that I learned, it's the power of community, the power of the collective, having the right culture. And I do really struggle. I come back. So let me just give you a very quick anecdotal analogy. I forget where I'd been, Pakistan or somewhere. And you know, I built a house out in the Cotswolds, or we built a house four or five years ago. I came up from Pakistan and the walls are just going up. And I'm walking around this house. It's a relatively large house. Big footprint. This is the world's biggest bungalow. I'm walking around this this thing. And I'm absolutely horrified by what we're doing. I said to Jazz, are you kidding me? The amount of money we're investing in this? In Pakistan, there'd be like 10 families living here. And we got this plot of land in this house all to ourselves. There's only four of us. This is vulgar. This is disgusting. I was back the following week. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. Because, hmm. you know, we are, myself included, we are so short sighted sometimes. And of course, we built the house and everything else. And you now I come back you know, and I look at it sometimes and I, you know, I came back from the poor issue. I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, Christ, now I'm part of the problem. Now, perhaps I have that you know, realization that I am part of the problem, but, but it's also a reminder that we have to have cognitive diversity we have to have different
0: outlooks we have to open our horizons because if you just exist if you never left you'd never feel like that if you 100
1: you know yeah and i learned from quite an early age yeah i I was in pakistan i was 19 years old my first expedition we climbed this mountain did a first ascent drop off the 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 wrong side of the mountain for various reasons and we're walking across a a meadow and this young boy we're probably the same age as me at the time he was what 17 18 he was a goat herder he comes running up he's shouting, and screaming at us. I mean, oh my God, we're we going to get, this is really bad. And it's quite, quite the opposite. He hadn't seen a human being for weeks. He's up there on his own. And he doesn't speak a word of English. You know, I don't speak Urdu. Uh, and it's three of us. And he invites us into his goat herding shed thing, yurt, whatever it was. He's just there on his own. And we spent the night there. And he shared what little he had. He shared everything with us. He cooked his dinner. You know, we ran out of gas. We ran out of food on this climb. This generosity that he he was showing us, and you know, I didn't grow up in poverty, but my dad was unemployed through a lot of my my teenage years. So I understood a little bit about hardship, but I still had a roof on my head. We had running water. We had food on the table. And there's this guy with what well, is this kid with almost nothing, and he's sharing everything. And I I was mesmerized by this. And it was a light bulb moment that everything that I had understood or been taught up to that point was arguably a fabrication and that there was something entirely different. There was a different way of living your life and showing generosity to others, which is arguably the most important, most rewarding thing that we can actually do. And it took this young Pakistani boy to educate me on that Despite the fact i have been to university and been to a grammar school in High Wycombe and all these amazing things. Yeah. No, no one ever taught me that. And here you are 30 years later and you still carry the memory of that. Oh, God, yeah. I often wonder what happened that to shepherd, him. yeah. Yeah. He yeah. might oh, yeah. still be there. He might still be looking God, after hope his God, I God, it was a hard way of life. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he may, may well yeah. be. Uh, he may, perhaps he's not even alive. I don't know. But that generosity...
4: Well that's a really good example of that quote, isn't it? That when the student is ready, the teacher will appear and hmm. maybe that was the right time for that lesson yeah. for
1: you. Oh, absolutely. One hundred percent. Yeah. Nolta Valley in North Pakistan. Amazing. Right. Um, the three non-negotiables that people have to buy into if they're going to allow
0: you to take them up a mountain.
1: Uh, but yeah. I mean, they're all value driven, I think. Uh, I mean, honesty has got to be right up there. Yeah. Uh, we, we, I spend a lot of time building a trust relationship with my clients before we go to, to Everest, and it's all about honesty because I I need to know. As a mountain guide, there's lots of stuff we can do, but I, I'm not I'm not a mind reader. And uh, if I ask you how are you feeling on a scale of one to ten, you know, it's got to be an honest answer because otherwise we can get so honesty uh, is why I mean kindness. Yep, uh, I, I've learned that over the years. I'm still learning that. I, I'm not as kind as I could be. Um, so there's ever developing, but yeah, honesty, kindness, and I suppose it's linked to honesty, but integrity. I think honesty and integrity are actually subtly different because I think you can be have integrity, but maybe be dishonest. Maybe it's the other way around. I don't know. But yeah, I think there's yeah, I would say kindness is, is you can't be kind enough. Where were you? Where are you? And where are you going? I'm on a personal journey to understand myself more. It's only something I've been invested in relatively recently. I think i was deluding myself. So where was I? Uh, I was very self-absorbed. Where am I? Uh, I'm on that path. And where am I going? I don't think I ever get to mastery. But perhaps I'd like to move out of apprenticeship to journeyman. Even by saying that, that's self-absorbed, isn't it? Because that's all about me. But I think you need to understand yourself in order to be able to project that in a meaningful way onto others. I like to be kinder. Well, it's there. It's there if you want to be kinder. The opportunity oh yeah, I know exists. that. I know that. But it's, it's how you sometimes project that and in times of when you're stressed then you quite often, I do anyway, sort of revert back to your default settings and my default settings aren't always the most holistic or kind sometimes and i've only learned this through the teachings of my wife who is a very wise generous individual and yeah we're constantly learning developing talking of which just breaking away from the quick fire questions for a minute like i found this a,
0: obviously a deeply emotional interview and i see you know you Tears in your eyes when you talk about your children. Tears in your eyes when you talk about the young shepherd who was generous to you. Obviously, tears in your eyes when you talk about the traumas you faced on the side of the mountain. And this is in the context of you currently being more open about exploring your own emotions and your own feelings. I wonder if we'd have had this conversation five or ten years ago. Would the emotions have been as on the surface as they are? Or maybe the work you've done on yourself recently has made you realise the power of... Your own human emotion and your power of vulnerability, really.
1: I think the emotion's always been there. It's been one of those, it's one it's one of those things. You know, I get teary very easily. I could be presenting on stage to an organisation and get teary talking about you know an Everest ascent. It's, it's one of those really strange things that I, I tear up a lot. I've tried to hide it in the past because it's not what you know, alpha males are meant to do. And I've given up on that years ago. Yeah. I, I don't see any, any harm in, in being teary, but behind that, there's a deeper emotion today than there would have been 10 years ago. You know, my understanding of my own connectedness with my feelings is deeper now than it was. I, I, I was winging life even five years ago. Um, And it was only, I think through reading, through listening to podcasts, that I realised I needed to work on myself. And it's a work in progress. And it always will be. But I'm really glad that I embarked on it. So yeah, I'm a very different individual, much more connected to who I am than I was five, ten years ago. It would have been a very different interview.
4: How important is legacy to you?
1: My own legacy is... Is, is somewhat irrelevant uh that's my self-centeredness coming out again but i think what's really important is the next generation my children our ability to affect change is well certainly mine i'm I'm, I'm nearly 50 is is now non-existent yet my generation has wreaked havoc on the planet um society and, and all these sorts of things and if there was gonna be any legacy it, it's implementing some form of change. And I don't think I can do that. I I, I can't do that. The, the biggest legacy that my generation can leave is educating the next generation to, to not be us uh, and to be more aware of the impact that we have. I mean, it's really interesting. Isn't it? Because the biggest impact that I would ever have on this planet is by having children. And that was a conscious decision and children never ask to get born so it's our duty to educate them so that they can navigate their lives on this planet and this society and hopefully implement change whereby society becomes better the environment starts to heal so that there is a life that's not some post-apocalyptic nightmare, which I think we're heading towards. What advice would you give to a teenage Kenton just starting out? A, t- a teenage Kenton was a very shy, naive, uh, introspective individual who didn't perhaps express who he could have been or wanted to be. And I think this is this, this was brought into, not beyond my teenage years, this was brought into my 20s and my 30s, you know, that inability to... Be vulnerable, the inability to uh, express emotion, the inability to be connected to others. Uh, and I don't think that, that was my upbringing. It was just kind of who I was and the environment that I was in. Whereas now I look back on it and you no, know, it's very inhibiting back then and it shouldn't have been. And if I wanted to express perhaps who I wanted to be more, That was perfectly acceptable because ultimately nobody cares, really. I was always in fear of failure in the eyes of my peers. I mean, I'm very competitive, very competitive, destructively so, and not wanting to fail in, in the eyes of my peers, ultimately they don't care. No, really? And it's taken me a long, long, long time to learn that. I got a savage, I used to have a savage jealousy streak that came from that fear of failure and that competitiveness. And jealousy is a hideous human trait. It's nasty. Just be,
4: be who you want to be. If you could go back to one moment in your life, what would it be and Why?
1: Uh, we not really talked about it. I I I had a pretty bad climbing accident a long time ago, 25, 26, 27 years ago, 1996, whenever that was. Um it was hard. Um you broke both your heels. Broke both my heels. Told you uh, uh, you wouldn't walk, wouldn't walk without a stick, definitely wouldn't climb, wouldn't um wouldn't be able to run and it crushed me was a community that was part of the climbing community, it's going back to that connection, that, that, that connectiveness through, um, a collective. It was, it was everything I stood for. It was my life. And that was taken away or attempted to take, taken away by a, a consultant who crushed me by saying, you won't climb. And I saw that as taking away, climbing would take away everything. And then I was in a wheelchair, uh, you know, learning to walk again with crutches. You know, falling over in on parallel bars into the arms of my physio, and all these things. I mean, it was it was a hideous time. Yeah, at the same time, such a rich time for learning. And I th- and it sounds ridiculous. I think if we could go back to that time, I with what I know now, I'd learn so much more. And I think some of the hardships that i've endured since then because i didn't optimize my learning being given that opportunity i'd love to go back and experience that whole thing again not not no i don't regret falling off and smashing myself up not one little I, I, i like to think i don't regret anything other than perhaps I didn't take full opportunity of the, that learning potential. I could have learned so much more quicker back then rather than learning now. Um, yeah, I, I love the opportunity to go back. Maybe not experience all the pain <laughs> and now the physical pain of falling off and all things like that. But yeah, it's an amazing time being in a wheelchair in London, trying to navigate all, all of that, all that that presents to you. This is in 96, you know, buses that, that go down and... You know, disabled access back then was crap. And, and the, the ability to learn. I don't think I missed it completely, but I'd love to go back. And
0: last question your final message really for people that have listened to this brilliant episode of high performance, what would you like to leave ringing in their ears? Your one final golden rule to living a high performance life.
1: A single golden rule. I mean, how how do you distill high performance and life into into a single golden rule? Doesn't really matter what other people think of you. It's about what you think of yourself. And, you know, to, to really achieve high performance, you have to believe in yourself and I think through society today, you know, we're bombarded with you know, Instagram or TikTok or, or whatever it is. And, and we see these other people live in these amazing lives and we think, God, you know, I'm not worthy enough. I'm not like them. I'm not as beautiful. I'm not as hardworking. I'm not in the gym as much. I don't earn as much money. I don't drive that night. Doesn't matter. Okay, if you can cut that fluff away and be you regardless of what other people think about you and I suppose the other thing is surround yourself with people that tell you what you need to know not what you want to know or what you want to be told and that comes back to that self-belief we live in a society that is very fake and it for the majority of people it erodes their self belief, and if you want to be a high, experience high performance, or even good performance, or you know, be working at an optimum level, you've got to believe in yourself, regardless of what others think. And and that is in this day and age, it's hard. Kenton, thank you so much. What? Right, a thank you for fascinating having
0: fascinating conversation. Me. And I, like the big thing that I've ringing in my ears is. Personal connection, you know, th- which we've had, I think, during this conversation. But you've clearly learned to have such deep, strong, powerful connections with people, whether you're on the mountain, whether you're at home with your family. And it's a brilliant reminder for people in this world where we feel more connected than ever, and actually we are more disconnected than ever. So thank you so much, man. No, it was
4: no, it's a pleasure. Really, really, really interesting, incredible. What a life, Damien. Jake. The
0: standout for me from that conversation is the, the power of relationships, the power of connection. I'm sure I've told you this before. I'll share it with the people on the podcast. I remember when I first got into telly, I felt like I had to have an agent around me or I had to say, oh yeah, speak to my people. And it was only when I started working with David Coulthard, you know, the 13 time Grand Prix winner who I worked with on the Formula One coverage. And I said, who's your agent? And he goes, son, why would I want an agent? Life is about personal relationships. Trust me, if I'm talking about making money, If I get to know someone, that is where the true financial impact lies. Because if they know me and I know them, we can have an honest conversation about a deal or whatever. And it's only all these years later that you have a conversation with someone like Kenton and you realise that his entire life is built on knowing that personal
4: relationships, not just relationships, is what matters. Yeah. There was that quote came to mind about that, you know, every corpse on Everest was once a highly motivated person and the idea that climbing to the top of Everest is a phenomenal feat and to do it 16 times as he's done is uh, even more exceptional. But that story he told of Mr. Lee that was told him really quite moving in terms of finding that guy who was a corpse is a really good example of, of where the strength of relationships, of the, the, the way that he was able to connect with the Sherpas, to go and eat in their houses, to go and socialise with them, to go and laugh and cry with them was actually what's kept him alive on those sixteen times of scaling Everest. Because, you know, people don't don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And he was a really good example of that investment of time is never wasted.
0: And also a reminder, I think, that you can be strong and you can be vulnerable.
4: Yeah. Yeah. That's I mean, that's a really interesting one, isn't it? That I know we spoke about having binary thinking on the uh, on the mountain when he's in the, zef- uh, the death zone of seeing things in black and white terms. But I actually think what you're describing there is adding the or, so you can be vulnerable and you can also be strong and not just thinking it's life is an either or process. You can be both. But also like, who would you rather be taken up the mountain by? right? Someone who
0: is strong, like Kenton is, and knows the ropes and knows the the sort of the the hard skills, the technical skills of climbing, but also has emotion, has a vulnerability, has an understanding of the human condition, can relate to you. Or do you want to be taken up by an automaton that perhaps misses things because they haven't got that emotional intelligence? Like I want the leaders in my life, whether they're my kids' teachers, whether they're the people in my production company, whether it's the people working here on the podcast, I want them to be vulnerable with an emotional intelligence with a fragility with a an ability to relate and to empathize with each other
4: yeah well so often we've spoken on the podcast have not we that when you go on any quest whether it's you're going after high performance or in kenton's case you're scaling a mountain you're still going to hit the messy middle that bit where it feels and looks like a failure so uh, that's where the emotional intelligence stuff comes into its own somebody that can not shout at you and berate you for feeling silly when you're stuck in that messy middle but somebody that can come and sit with you can empathize with you and can understand how you feel to then get you back on your feet and carry on your journey so i yeah exactly i think it's almost such an underrated virtue thanks a lot mate thanks jake i loved it
0: it's now the part of the show where we welcome a high-performance listener, and we now welcome Luke Takuchi. Luke sent us an email, actually, to say that he's 41. He's the CEO of a housing association in South Wales. He actually took the job at 37, which is a big shout because he's got around 80 colleagues. They turn over around £10 million a year. But he says he loves the role of the CEO. However, and we'll talk about this in a moment, it can be lonely. He goes on to say that high performance has given him an advantage he didn't think that he would have without it, opening the door to so many inspirational leaders. And he even took a recent exec away day, starting with everyone's three non-negotiables. So maybe we should find out his in a moment, Damien. Um, he says, I think your pod is a unique offer for business leaders like myself, and I'm not aware of anything else like it. He mentions Rick Lewis, Steve Morgan, James Timpson, Susie Marr, um, and the notes he made while listening to them. Well, Luke, welcome.
3: Thanks guys. Appreciate having on. It's brilliant to be here.
0: So was there a moment where you first sort of realised what high performance could do for you and that it was more than just kind of listening to something and, and moving on with your life?
3: Yeah, I think well, I, I think if I look back now, so obviously during the pandemic, like many, sort of going for a run or just sat around the house and having a listen. Uh for me it's always it's just amazing sense check of because it is a lonely world and you you've not really like many CEOs, you haven't done it before. So when you step into that mantle, um, you've got to look outside as well. So all of a sudden I was listening to people like, I remember Rick Lewis is the one that always sticks with me. And I just thought what an amazing sort of character, the leadership side of that. And it's, it's a nice sense check to know that what you're doing sometimes is like others are doing. And obviously you've got to be confident in your own ability, but hearing how others lead businesses and their sort of culture and values was really useful for me. So I think, yeah, that the Rick Lewis one always stands out and the Susie. Um, I loved, I remember him talking about uh, sort of don't sacrifice your right to be dumb. Remember that? I'm sure you do. And uh, that's that's really true because I, I see it so many times in my business and other businesses where you see people around the table and there's just this fear of asking the, the silly question. So I think for me, it is our privilege of you can sort of pause and you can say, look, let's go back over that and let's let's recheck that. We need everyone in the business to understand it. Otherwise, we're just going to be leaving the room not knowing what's going on. So that really stuck with me. And I just, I liked this sort of balance with you've got to have fun, you've got to enjoy it, but you've got business focused at times as well. So that was, that was one I enjoyed.
4: And the one, I mean, the nature of your work in sort of the housing association often sort of makes me think of the Susie Ma infinite purpose principle, the difference that you make for the rest of the world. So what, like, what is that infinite purpose that you've introduced that in the Housing Association?
3: Yeah, so interestingly, we we use this in our corporate way. They used to set the new plan. So I've always said uh, uh, the advantage for us is we're dealing with people. So we're dealing with lives, we're dealing with people. We've seen the impact it can have when you give someone a home, how that can change someone's life. So no disrespect to colleagues that sell clips, but we always say, look, we're, we're not selling paper clips. We've got the advantage here of dealing with people first of first. So we use that, and ours, in answer to your question, Damien, is just about making a difference, a positive difference to someone's life. And that can be in loads of different ways now because we're no longer just building homes and managing homes. We, we do projects in the community around employment, apprenticeships, training. So you see that broad sort of spectrum now of how you can make a difference in a positive way.
0: Would you mind sharing with our listeners some tips that you, you've you got for how you don't get overwhelmed by the fact that your work actually is life-changing and life-saving in some cases? Um, do you have tips and tricks that you use to not allow it to overwhelm you and to sort of stay in the blue brain space rather than letting emotion take over?
3: Well, for, for me, it's really about having the balance. So when you've got family, three kids, the job, always taking that downtime. So I always reflect, have a bit of time at the end of the day. I'm an early riser. I think I said that in the email. So that really helps me get prepared for the day. So getting up. What do you do in that time? I usually exercise. So I usually go to the gym um, for like 45 minutes, but then I'll get my emails sorted, get my notes for the day, just things I need to be prepared with, looking at my diary for the, I'm always like a week or two ahead. So that really helps. Um, And just getting outside as well at the end of the day, whether that's with the kids or just having a stroll, podcast, wherever it might be, you've got to have that balance. So I've, I've never been one, I've never thought it's badge of honor, like last one in the office. And I've worked with people like that over the years and you see them really struggling and they're sort of there at seven o'clock at night. They're not productive. So that's one of the biggest things I've learned over the pandemic is we, we're far more productive. So we have switched everyone to nine day fortnights, um, no core hours. We got great flexibility uh, for colleagues across the business where they just trust them to do the job, just do the job and be good at it is the main thing.
4: And one of the comments you made Luke was about the loneliness of, bit of uh, of leadership. Um, how do you cope with that?
3: I've I've almost got this like a, an official board around me outside of work. If that makes sense. So I've, I've got the board I, I operate with in my chair in work, outside work. I've got lots of friends that do different, you know, in different industries and sectors. My wife, bless her, you know, she, she knows when I come down. That transitions hard sometimes from work. I'm in the office more now, but having that transition of getting out of a workspace, So I need lots of good people around me. So I've I've had coaches and mentors like lots of chief execs do. Um, but I'll sit and have a coffee or a pint with someone and have a chat, um, talk about problems that we're all sharing.
4: And in those informal chats, whether it's with a coach or your wife or, or, or some of your mates in the pub, what's the one piece of advice that you've picked up that you would want to pass on to our listeners?
3: The biggest thing for me is, uh, can't put too much pressure on yourself so you you need to understand that it's just like a small steps sometimes so I've always been about vision and optimism and look into the future but you've got to sometimes I think in a business realize that whilst someone described it to me recently whilst you're on the balcony most people in the business can be on a dance floor and it's really important to go back and check so you've got to make sure you check and take steps and just celebrate the, the good things as, as they happen because you can always be looking to, to the big vision at the end if you don't celebrate the little things I think people Won't be with you on that journey. I like that. When you're on the balcony there on the dance floor. (laughs) Yeah, that that, that one stuck in me. That was someone who was a business psychologist who worked with us. And she, yeah, we did personality profiles. So obviously, you're always looking to learn. And uh, I have to, I just got to stop and pause sometimes, I think, if I'm being honest.
0: It's really good stuff. Listen, Luke, thank you so much for um, for getting in touch with us and sharing that. And I think that, you know, it's quite easy. And Damien and I are well aware of this. It's easy to be quite sniffy and cynical about you know, having conversations with people and thinking they actually are changing the lives and the mindsets and the approach of others. You know, it is, as we will say, it is just a podcast. We're just having a chat with people. But, you know, you are testament to the fact you can be a CEO with loads of staff, turnover in the many millions, and you are genuinely being helped by this podcast. And that for us is is really humbling to hear. So
3: thank you, man. Fantastic. Appreciate being on. Really enjoyed it. Cheers, guys.
0: Wow, what an episode, hey? Um, Don't forget, if you want to join us for a special live night of high performance where we bring together so much of the learnings over the past three years, then head right now to norwichtheatre.org or to thehighperformancepodcast.com and come and join us on the 5th of February in Norwich at the Norwich Theatre Royal for a big live high performance extravaganza. I'd love to see you there. But whether you can make it there or not, I just want to say thank you. Last week, our conversation with Mo Gaudat, the happiness expert, touched and reached so many people. And I know how much you shared that among your own community. And that makes such a difference to us. So thank you for continuing to spread the learnings from these conversations. Thanks as well to Finn, to Hannah, to Will, to Eve, to Gemma and Callum for their hard work today. Remember, there is no secret. It's all there for you. So chase world-class basics. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic, and I'll see you very soon.